Right, definitely grab one of those, um, as it was said in the email, snazzy notebooks. Um, I'll leave the snazzy level up to you to determine if it's snazzy enough. We actually will be, as we go through all of Matthew, we will... um, uh, we have a notebook for each kind of episode. So if, if, if you kind of treat it like a DVD box set, this is season one of Matthew, Introduction to Jesus, these first four, verse, these first four chapters. Season two is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and then we get into some other things as we go. So hopefully we'll have five all in the end. Um, well, one thing to maybe think about in the beginning here, I'm going to try and combat the wind that's blowing in here, um, is a beach ball. It's a fun thing, right? A beach ball, you throw them out at concerts and people are excited and they, you know, play with them and stuff. A beach ball is really fun. It's bright. It's full of air. Um, it kind of bounces around, easy to hit around. Um, a deflated beach ball, not so much fun, uh, kind of useless, and it's kind of sad. I mean, look at that thing. It's kind of like, ordinarily a beach would be fun, but now you have a deflated beach beach ball on the beach and it just doesn't really look very fun, just kind of sad. Now, the, for the majority of a beach ball, it is fully inflated, it's, it's made of air. A fully inflated beach ball is made of air, nothing really of substance. And I think this can actually be a good analogy for the good in our lives. We don't want to be this kind of useless, droopy little beach ball. We want to be full, we want to be fun, we want to be bright, we want people to like, you know, have fun. Uh, but what we do in this conundrum is we try and fill up that beach ball ourselves. We huff and we puff and we try very hard to make sure that we stay inflated, that we stay full. We want to be useful, bright, fun, all those things. So we're good neighbors, we recycle, we contribute to society, we might even come to church, not because we need rescuing, but because we want to be kind of, we need to have that inflated kind of life. It's a lot of work keeping ourselves filled up. But in filling our lives up with ourselves, what happens there is we lack substance. We're just kind of full of hot air. Like the beach ball, we're just kind of full of air. Also, as we fill ourselves, this is what we do. We tend to overinflate the good and deflate the bad. We try to over-exaggerate the good we do in this world and kind of rationalize or explain away or kind of really downplay the bad that we bring into this world. So our sins, which another way of saying our sins is all the bad that we bring into this world, our sins, they're there, but we don't really deal with them. We play them down, we forget them, we rationalize them. But try as we might, those sins are still there. And every little sin that we have in that inflated beach ball is like just one little puncture, no little puncture, no little puncture. You can only keep your hand on so many. And so now you're in this like uh, rabid, frantic race to try and inflate this beach ball to make sure it stays, stays inflated, but now with all these little holes all over the place. By ourselves, we're all slowly deflating. And that's not a really good way to live. It doesn't bring peace, it brings anxiety doesn't bring rest because you always have to be at work pumping yourself up. And try as we might, we will never be full enough. But what Jesus has come to do is to save us from this unhealthy, sick little cycle. To save people from their sins, as, to save his people from their sins, as it says here in, this, in the verse that we read. To, sa- to save us from our sins means rescuing us from that spiritual hamster wheel of death. You just keep on going around and around and around and around, and maybe someday you'll make it, but you never really get off the thing. In his family, men and women are rescued from the bad that they bring into this world. So the good news is this, that God created this world. He has given us, we spoiled this world, but he's given us himself so that even we can be recreated. We can be rescued from how we've disfigured ourselves and be refigured by in the way that Jesus has done. So we're going to find that Jesus is a real rescue. 
We're going to find that Jesus is actually really present with us. And we're going to find that if those two are true, if Jesus uh, is a real rescue and if he's really present, then and only then is he worth real faith. If he's not those things, he's really not worth real faith. He's worth something else. But if he is those things, he is worth real faith. And it's a much better life than this beach ball life. It's one of substance, one of rest, one of peace, one of love. That's what Jesus gives. And so we're going to start with this idea of rescue. And if you have any questions, you go to that website there, redeemermcr.com slash ask, and they will anonymously come through, and we will, if I remember correctly, we'll deal with them after the sermon. Whatever questions you have, um, we're happy to get to it. I re- what, we, what we have to start with is this insane thing that Matthew writes um, in chapter 21. She will give him birth to a son, and you are to give the name Jesus, because this is the insane thing. This is insane. He will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Only God can really rescue us from ourselves. Jesus is the only one who can really offer a real rescue, is what, what Matthew is saying here. I mean, the name Jesus, in Greek, you pronounce it Iesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. It's where we get our name Joshua from. The name itself means salvation, means rescue. Jesus' name itself is rescue, liberation, salvation. Now, if we say being saved, and if we say rescue, the, really the, probably the good question is, well, what are we being saved from? What are we being rescued from? It presupposes we need a rescue to begin with. If we call ourselves redeemer as a church, well, what are we being redeemed from? Our sins, is what the verse says. Save his people from their sins. Our sins are all the things we shouldn't do but do anyway. We had that time of confession already that Elspeth led us in, and the song that, that Sam and, and Liz sang for us the thoughts that we shouldn't accommodate, the things that we ought to do but don't, words that should be used for building others up, but instead we use them to build ourselves up at others' expense. All the brokenness of this world that we've contributed to, that's, our, that's what sin is. That's what our sin is. That means we are carrying, we have something within us. We have this thing on our backs, uh, not only that we've been born into, but something we've also contributed to that holds us back, that keeps freedom away, that, that enslaves us. This sin of ours brings in these little deaths over time. It's all these little deaths that these sins bring into our lives. And eventually it leads to our ultimate death. See, death is separation from life. And that is the penalty of our sins. We know our hearts aren't whole. But we try and fill it up with often the wrong things. We try anything really to fill it up. And Jesus has come to rescue us from that. He has come to liberate us from our broken selves in this broken system. And that is quite a claim. That's insane or the best thing ever. There's no claim that can be bigger than that. And if it's true, that really means we have to organize our lives around that truth if it is true. How can Matthew say this about Jesus? How can Jesus be these two things? I mean, there's lots of reasons for this, but two things maybe we could focus on is Jesus has the authority and he also has the ability. Authority and ability. He has the authority to do this from, from God. This is the, uh, an angel who's God's mouthpiece telling Joseph, um, Jesus' adopted, soon-to-be adopted father, um, this angel uh, uh, talking to Joseph, and these are God's words about Jesus. God doesn't have any words like this for us, right? God didn't go to Marcus's dad and said, um, by the way, um, you're going to have a son again, name him Marcus, because he's going to save his people from their sins. And that didn't happen to Marcus. Uh, that, well, I mean, if it did, we ought to really know. Uh, <laughs> it, didn't happen to me. it didn't happen to any of us, right? It happened to one person. It happened to Jesus. 
He has the authority from God himself through God's word. Now, it's one thing to have authority, but it's a whole other thing to be able to actually use that authority in a way that's going to make the thing happen, to have the ability. Just having authority doesn't mean you have the ability. So Jesus not only has authority from God, but he also has the ability to do this crazy outlandish thing because he is God. This is also part of his name, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. So Jesus is God, not someone like God with us. They didn't name him similar to God with us, someone who worships God who's with us, someone who, I don't know, gives revelation about God to us is literally God with us. If God is indeed with us, he actually would have the ability to do the thing that Matthew's writing about here. He would have the authority to save people from their sins because he's God. He made this place. And really, only God can have this ability. Anyone who claims anything else, you think that guy's crazy. Like, lock him up. They have a problem. Because they think they're God. Well, God can think that he's God. So Jesus has come to give us a real rescue, to save us from our sins. He alone has this kind of authority. He alone has this kind of ability. Now, one thing I also want to look at is the way that Matthew writes here. He doesn't say he's going to save people from their sins. He doesn't say everybody from their sins. He says his people. Uh, well, who are his people? This is actually what we talked about last week, if you remember. We talked about outsiders, especially people who were not following the um, traditional sexual cultural path. Uh, we talked about people who are insiders, people who are really religious. We talked about everyone who was spiritually starved and needed full hearts. Some kind of horrible thing happened back there. Oh, all the coffee poured out. <laughs> right. <laughs> so all of so people who are uh, you know cultural, spiritual, religious, whatever insiders, people who are cultural, spiritual, religious outsiders, they say everyone who wants a full heart, those are his people. Those are Jesus' people, beyond ethnicity, beyond skin color, beyond class, beyond everything else. And so I wonder, as we come to read these words, does this define you? Are you part of his people? Is this part of you say, yeah, I'm Jesus, uh, he's my people. Or Jesus should say that to you, maybe. He's my people. She's my people. Some of this talk um, about authority reminds me of, and I hope you guys all know about this, the amazing uh, video clip of Jackie Weaver and the Zoom call of the Hanforth Parish Council meeting. Do you remember this thing? Um, there was this, it was during lockdown, it was one of the few things that gave like a bright comedic spot to life. Um, if you don't remember what happened, uh, Jackie Weaver, pictures in the middle here, uh, it was this uh, parish counselor meeting, and all these counselors are on this Zoom call. Uh, and someone, and Jackie Weaver, who's the one there, is like removing people from the Zoom call, like people who she doesn't like, people who are disagreeing with her, like they're out. They're kicking them out of the Zoom room. That's the power of Zoom. You can just kick someone out, and no one you can do anything about it. And then someone in, in this meeting, I think it was one of the people around here, said, uh, very vehemently said, you have no authority here, Jackie Weaver, no authority at all. And what she did immediately remove that guy. Like, he wasn't the thing anymore. And she just removed people loads. Uh, I don't know if you remember this at all. If you haven't, please, please. Uh, go on Google or YouTube, Jackie Weaver, because you will not be let down. After months of investigation, though, because there were actually some actual serious investigations, I think I read this in The Guardian, it was found out that Jackie Weaver actually did not, in fact, have the authority to remove people, which is a gasp, I know. It's like removing in the official government kind of meeting. Now, with the clip itself is hilarious and ought to live on British comedic and cultural memory for years to come. But this is, I think, what it's like sometimes in our own lives. 
We give ourselves the authority. The authority we don't really have, we don't rightly have. We have our own definitions of our own sin, of our own rescue, the only way we want to live our lives. And of course, those things make us look the best way possible. We have our own versions of what will give us the freedom that we need, but we don't have the authority. And yet we still are still trying to kick people out, still trying to kick those other areas of authority that do have the power to speak into our lives. We don't want to hear them. We want to silence them. Since the beginning of human history, from Genesis 3, humanity has been a story of people trying to steal authority for ourselves that we don't rightly have. And when we do have that authority and power, it normally doesn't go very well. In fact, it always ends in death. It's never not ended in death. So we don't have the authority to rescue ourselves from our sins or to live that kind of really full life, and we certainly do not have the ability to do that either. So how are we ever, ever going to have whole hearts then? How are we going to ever have full lives? How is this ever going to work? When we're facing down our own death, you might be surrounded by people who love you immensely and, and even as perfect as a human can be. When we're facing down our own death, who among us has the authority or the ability to help at all? Well, God certainly does. And he certainly desires to do something about it. In fact, he went completely out of his way to do something about it. He has come to save us. That's one of the reasons why he came. And if that's true, surely that means we can give up a little bit of our inner Jackie Weaver that we all have, trying to steal authority for ourselves. We can give a little bit of that up and let God be the good God who he is. Because Jesus is the one, the only one who can offer a real rescue. So Jesus offers a real rescue. Uh, he offer, also offers a real presence. And this is something that only God can be with us through it all. And we've talked about um, the name Emmanuel already, God with us. We talked about the God part, but there's another aspect of with us, God with us, a very generalized with us. It's not like God who's kind of off in the distance, God who's mildly disappointed, God who's Santa Claus in the sky, like just waiting to give out money to people who are good or whatever kind of weird views we have about Christianity and God. Matthew is teaching us that Jesus is God with us. Jesus himself actually will say things like this in Matthew 18, 20. He say, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Who can say that? That would be very weird if I said that. You know, as you guys gather in your missional community on Thursday night, I'm with you. Like, no, you're not. Like, and it would be weird if you were like, what are you creeping in the back? Like, what are you doing? But Jesus is, he's with us right now, literally right now in our missional communities. And in, in, in when you pray together with your partner. And Jesus also says at the end of Matthew 28, and surely I am with you always. He's saying this to his followers who have seen the resurrected Jesus. This is the resurrected Jesus speaking to, the, to them and therefore to us. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. From before Jesus was born, here in Matthew 1, there's a declaration, Jesus is God with us. All the way to the very last words of Matthew's gospel, which is this verse right here. Jesus is God with us to the end. From Jesus' beginning to our end, he is God with us. And this is a real presence. Almost kind of seems a little bit godlike, which makes sense because he's God. Now, how in the world might this be possible? Because, and me and Colin talked about this actually loads of the past few weeks, um, I don't see him. Don't see Jesus. There's that John Travolta little gif of him looking around like no one's showing up. Wait, where's Jesus? I don't see him here. I don't see God. Um, 
I feel the breeze. Is that like God? Like, what's the deal? I don't see him here with us. Well, in verse 20, uh, about Mary's pregnancy, I think this really helps get at to how this works. An angel tells Joseph, and look at there in verse 20. An angel tells Joseph, uh, says, uh, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to talk about the virgin birth in a second. Just, like, put that on pause for a moment. The Spirit of God was active in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1-2. So in the Genesis 1, in the beginning, beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very next verse, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, hovering over the chaos. The Spirit of God was there. The Creator Spirit, this Holy Spirit, is involved in the creation of life and also the ongoing refreshing of life. Isaiah 32 says this, Till the Spirit is poured out, is poured on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. So what was previously a desert that gets poured out on by this Holy Spirit now becomes a fertile field, and not just a field, but like a forest, a huge, massive thing. So we have the Holy Spirit in the creation of life. We have the Holy Spirit in the ongoing refreshing of life from desert to forest. And we also have the Holy Spirit in the recreation of the broken. Psalm 6, or Isaiah 61 says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. This was words that were coming from the Messiah's lips and Jesus quotes this verse to teach people about himself in Luke. The creator spirit is on Jesus and it's through this spirit that he can be with us always. More than anything else, in this world, Jesus is a real presence with his people always because of the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus can be with us through it all. I mean, you might have a great job, but how are they going to act when you don't perform well? Maybe they hang with you for one quarter or two quarters, but eventually, if you're not performing to the level of your pay, you'll either get your pay doctor or you get sacked. And that makes sense. A job is a transaction. As great as jobs can be, they're not really a family. But not so with Jesus. Because we know if we take like two seconds, and we took like a minute, just 60 seconds at the beginning of this, of this worship service, and we had probably maybe a few things that came to mind, we don't perform well to the level at all. But Jesus never will fire us or sack us. He's always there. I have friends who uh, have lived in addiction over the majority of their lives. They burn through friends and family uh, because, you know, people can only take so much. All of us have a, broken, a breaking point. We, all of us, have a breaking point somewhere where we just can't anymore, but not so with Jesus. Nobody else can say that, because Jesus is God with us. We'll be with his people through everything, to the end, through the highs, through the lows, through all the in-betweens, all of it. God is not some kind of far-off being. He is here with us, and he does, in fact, know what it's like to walk in our shoes, there are, most likely, all of us have had experiences where no other human knows what it's like. Have you ever got that feeling? Like, oh, nobody knows what it's like. It's a very lonely feeling. It's a depressing feeling. It doesn't feel great. Whether it's true or not, we, we all have those feelings. No one of, no human has ever gone to the depths of suffering that Jesus has. No human has. So and Jesus knows uh, suffering beyond whatever any of us will experience. So really, the only one who has never walked in anyone else's shoes is Jesus. He's the only one who had done it all. Now, I may not know what it's like for you to walk through that difficult thing. That, that very well might be true. No other human knows the depths of pain that you're feeling, but Jesus does. Nobody has experienced the depths of pain more than Jesus. 
And nobody will experience more suffering than the perfect God taking on all of his people's sins. That will never happen to any other person. So he does know what it's like, even if nobody else does. Which I hope is comforting. And really what's true, we don't know what it's like to be him. That's more true. So this is, is real presence. Jesus isn't in it just to like make himself look good. Like He went through loads. He's not hanging around just for the good times that we can bring to him. He's here, he's with us through it all, through the Holy Spirit. So if this is who God is, as Matthew's writing, and if this is how he acts and, and, where, and what he's done, what in the world are we supposed to do? What does it look like to connect with God and if this indeed is what, if, what God is like? A God who gives a real rescue, a God who's actually really with us. Well, real rescue and real presence ought to lead to a real faith. I think that's what we learn from this section here. It ought to lead to a real faith, a real faith instead of a convenient faith, a real faith that surrenders to God even in the difficult things. And there are many difficult things that we need to surrender God to. A God that we have here, though, is actually worth that surrender. And real faith surrenders to God. Let's take a moment and look at this example of Joseph here. Because it is kind of unbelievable. We talk about Mary a lot, and rightfully so. But I don't think Joseph gets quite amount of the airtime, maybe, that he ought to deserve. Uh, how unbelievable is the virgin birth? How unbelievable. If you were Joseph, think that through his eyes. Like, wow, that's a real creative way, Mary, to say that you don't want to be with me anymore and you had sex with this other guy. Like, you could have just said, I'm done, and left. But, man... But a virgin birth is exactly how God said that Jesus would come. In verse 23, what we're reading is Matthew quoting the Greek translation of Isaiah 7.14. Jesus had to come from a virgin. If he didn't, he wouldn't be the Messiah. So if he didn't come from a virgin, he's not the Messiah, and we shouldn't follow him. He wouldn't be able to offer real rescue if he's not the Messiah, if he's not this king, if he's not this, this Jesus. And if God is God, though, surely this is something that he can pull off. If he created the whole world, he might be able to do this as well. And yet, even though that might be logically true, and yet there are some things that just feel so unbelievable that God has to tell us himself, as the angel did to Joseph. Mary tried to tell him. He's like, I don't know what to do with that. Okay, that's weird. But then an angel comes to Joseph, and through this word of God to Joseph, Joseph believes. Joseph surrenders all of the unbelief and all the doubt that he has and and not, doesn't say, I'm not in doubt anymore. Who knows? We don't really get with that. But he surrenders all that to God and follows him. Well, I think what we have with Joseph is an example of a model of, of how we ought to live. Now, not everything in here is easy to believe, right? Some of it seems outlandish. Some of it seems ridiculous. Uh, some of it seems offensive. I mean, the other day we were talking with um, the Connect MC, and some things are just really difficult to get. Like, why is this in the Bible? Especially at first sight. I don't think you need to tell Joseph that. Joseph knew the level of offense and ridiculousness. He experienced that outlandish, ridiculous offense very personally, and yet because it was God's words to him, he surrendered to that. But may we have a real faith like Joseph and surrender to his word. And with Joseph's uh, real faith, how did that affect his relationship with Mary? Well, before the angel even speaks to him, we get a kind of a view of Joseph's character. Uh, he was going to be as gracious as possible to a woman that, according to him and his perspective at that moment, surely must have just cheated on him. Now, it says that um, Joseph and Mary were engaged. In this uh, time and culture, first century Jewish 
uh, culture, engagement meant you were already bound together. You were already married, which is why it says that Joseph was her husband. Um, you're basically bound uh, in, an, in a year-long engagement and not living together. And th- after that year, though, you live together. So you're just like functionally married, closer to marriage in our world than it is engagement in our world. That's why uh, Joseph's mentioned as Mary's husband in verse 19. And that's why the only way out of the contract was to divorce her. Like you can't divorce someone you're not married to, but they're in this kind of contractual binding agreement. The only way uh, that, they, that he would have been able to divorce her was through death or divorce. And divorce was only possible through an affair if one of the parties um, had sex with somebody else. Now, it would have been possible, if Joseph wanted to, to make a big fuss of Mary cheating on him and say, oh, I've been, I've been wronged, and then the community would stone her. That's harsh, right? That's traditional Jewish law at that moment. That's horrible. This was actually like uh, legal to do. That's not great. But what that wasn't what Joseph wanted to do to Mary. That's not what he wanted to happen to her. So we see that Joseph has a character that can weather disappointment. He wanted to do something quietly, behind the scenes, like as relaxed and chill as possible, even though he would um, be uh, shouldering a lot of the shame as well. But he has this kind of character that can weather disappointment and anger, even through something like an extramarital affair. But after Joseph surrenders to God's word, he follows through. He doesn't just hear the words and say, yeah, wouldn't that be great if somebody did that? No, he, he actually he follows through. Real faith always follows through. That's a, that's a part of real faith. If it's not following through, it's not real faith, it's something else. Joseph adopts Jesus. Jesus becomes a son of David in the royal line through adoption. Have you ever thought about that? Joseph, in surrendering to God's word, adopts Jesus as his own, even though Joseph isn't his father. And Joseph is never spoken as his father in, in the Bible. And Jesus becomes a son of David through adoption. That's amazing. It required adoption for Jesus to be who he was. Joseph also names Jesus. There's like an ownership of naming somebody. There's like a connection. It isn't like, okay, I'll like stand a kid in my house, but you know, I'm not going to do any of the discipline and um, he'll do his own thing, I'll do my own thing. Like, no, Joseph is naming him. He's saying, like, I'm as much as I can be over you as a parent, that's what I'm going to be. Joseph adopts God into his royal line so that God can do the same for us. Even so that he could do the same for Joseph. So that we can be adopted into God's royal heavenly family. How selfless is Joseph here? He's getting the short end of the stick all over the place. What would it look like if our world had more Josephs? Even on a human level, if men and women were, were up for, for living in this kind of uh, sacrificial, surrendering way for someone else's good that we may never experience ourselves, for children who don't have their own family or home to be welcomed into one of no good of their own, of the kids, just because they need one. That's a way to see real change in this world, to adopt children. And wh- what about spiritually adopting other people? I think many of us have been, if not all of us, have been spiritually orphaned by our parents one way or another. What would it look like to be spiritual fathers and mothers to those who don't yet have them? I think this is a massive need in our city. And I would love to be part of equipping people to become spiritual fathers and mothers to those who really need them. If that's something, by the way, that piques your interest of that particular kind of spiritual mentorship or or helping out, um, please have a chat with me because I would love to put some plans to make that happen. But maybe with the moment, just just imagine with me for a second. If Manchester was filled with spiritual fathers and mothers, to help people who are completely lost spiritually to find their way, what would that look like? 
How would that change your city? How would that change your life? Imagine how that would help young people navigating this life through anxiety and uncertainty and fears. But maybe let's take that down. So that was maybe the whole city. Let's take that down a little bit. What if our church was filled with people like Joseph? Spiritual fathers and mothers who generously reached out to others, helping them where they needed it. I mean, what if that was the reputation of our church? Like, oh, I don't, I'm not really into that Christian thing, but man, Redeemer is really good at like, helping these people through difficult parts of their faith. That would be an amazing reputation to have. And not only do we get to love other people well, if you go to Redeemer, you get to be equipped on how to do that for other people as well, to, to continue that for others, to live out our real faith in these real ways. Now, these are the kinds of things that happen. And those are two small examples. These are the kinds of things that happen when we surrender to God's word. Real faith is an action. It has to end up in an action and a response of a surrender to God's word. His word can sometimes be outlandish, can sometimes feel ridiculous, can sometimes be very offensive, and of course it will, because we're not God, and we're not perfect, and we don't follow in all the perfect ways, and our brains are small, and we're finite in all the other things. Beware of a God who doesn't offend, because that's not a God at all, that's just you. But as we surrender to the real God, the actual real God who can offer a real rescue and a real presence, we can have an actual real faith. And remember, who are we surrendering to? The one who gives us a rescue, the one who's present with us. We're not surrendering to a, a horrible like dictator overlord who's going to steal fun from our lives. No, he's going to give us what we need and more so. It's the best thing for us, even though it can be difficult at times. Look, if Jesus is who he says he is, who Matthew says he is, who Mary and Joseph believed him to be, that changes everything. That really is worth our real faith. And real faith in a real God changes lives. And the way we can have this real faith is also through Jesus. Because it could be very easy to stop there, and then what we think is, okay, so now I need to keep inflating that beach ball, but now with like religious churchy things instead of like other things. And that's a horrible life to live. In fact, that's way less fun way to live, to have one foot in the church and one foot not in the church. It's just like go non-church or church. Like the worst experience is to have one and either, by the way. Just saying, if you want to have fun in this life, just pick one. Our faith in Jesus doesn't first come from us. It, it comes from Jesus. Joseph adopted Jesus into his earthly royal family. And when we say, Jesus, I follow you, when we say, I surrender to your ways or whatever kind of words you want to use to uh, what makes sense for you to, and as you're following him and not following yourself, we get adopted by God into his heavenly royal, heavenly royal family. And the Holy Spirit is one who works in us so that we would have real faith. The Holy Spirit is the one who frees us to surrender to his words, especially when we find them difficult. And is it even surrender if we're not surrendering in the difficult things? The Holy Spirit is how Jesus is present with us through all our circumstances. Now, Joseph's adoption of Jesus came at a price for sure. I mean, how many people must have been talking behind his back, right? Now, this, and, and Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, that's not the perfect image of a nuclear family, right? That is some kind of weird blended family thing going on there that is weirder than probably any blended family that's gone on in this earth. It's the strangest kind. And the cost that God paid, though, to adopt us was death. Not our own death that we rightly deserve because we messed it up, no, it was his death. So his rescue, his presence, his adoption, his cost from his death, his spirit at work in us, and all for what? All for our good. What kind of person acts this way? What kind of person lives this way? Who, who is this generous? 
this loving to people who don't deserve it, it is astonishing. Not just in our heads, but in our hearts. Jesus, our rescuer, died to adopt you to be his sons and daughters. And that's what the bread and the cup that we will take in a moment symbolize. Jesus, present with us, died so that he would always be with us. That's also what the bread and the cup symbolize. Jesus, the giver of real faith, 